I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show... Ornithologist Tim Burkhead on a 12,000 year history from cave art to conservation in his new book Birds and Us. Tim Burkhead is an award winning author, scientist, and university lecturer. He has written for The Independent, New Scientist, and BBC Wildlife, and his book Bird Sense was shortlisted for the Royal Society Science Book Prize. He's a fellow of the Royal Society an Emeritus Professor of Zoology in the School of Biosciences at the University of Sheffield. And today we're going to be talking about Tim's new book, which is Birds and Us, a 12,000-year history from cave art to conservation. Tim, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, good to be here. Tell us, first of all, then, what the idea behind this book is. I've been writing, thinking and doing research on birds I mean, throughout my entire career. And when one is a practicing scientist, you kind of have to abide by certain rules in terms of what work is appropriate at a certain time. And unfortunately for me, uh, that was behavioral ecology, which was a very rich and when I started a new field, incredibly rewarding with lots and lots of opportunities. But if you kind of stepped outside that field, uh, there were no kind of brownie points from the system or university. There were a few in, in the sense that if you wrote popular science that w- was successful, that was kind of viewed reasonably favourably. But for a long time during my research, I used to come across things that I th- I'd think, oh, that's interesting. And they were often things to do with people's relationships with birds. For example, I worked on captive zebra finches. And uh, in order to do that, I interacted with at the beginning I interacted with people that bred zebra finches in their sheds in their garden and talking to these people you know they're the kind of people that academics don't usually get to meet with and it dawned on me time and time again that some of these people had fantastic insights that scientists didn't have sometimes they came out with complete rubbish as well but you had to fill you had to filter that out but I was always deeply deeply impressed by the knowledge that a lot of these people had. And in fact, a lot of my research started from some of those discussions that led on to really kind of novel questions. So I've always uh, respected those kind of people, respected their relationship with birds. And then slowly, over a number of years, uh, the idea of writing about people's relationships with birds uh, became, I became more and more convinced that it was kind of worth doing. 
And I was also struck by the fact that our relationship with birds has changed so much over time. The book starts off with, as you said, the subtitles is a 12,000 year history from cave art. And there are some Neolithic cave paintings, many, many, I mean, in a couple of locations, but many paintings of birds. I was completely unaware that these things existed at all. Tell us about why they were there. Okay, so that's a really good question. So the 12,000 years kind of takes us back to the Paleolithic. And I kind of included that for a sense of completeness. But in fact, there are relatively few bird images in Paleolithic cave art. And then a few years ago, I became aware of this cave in southwestern Andalusia in an area that we'd been going to for 30 years. And then I discovered that this cave uh, had more bird paintings on its walls than all other caves put together. I really just couldn't believe that I'd been going to this area and not known about this. And it's only kind of since the internet has been publicising these kind of things that they become more generally known. After a few kind of shenanigans where I got had to get permission from the local junta to visit this cave, which was not certainly not open to the public, I then made contact with an uh, anthropologist and archaeologist from University of Cadiz, and she very kindly took myself and my wife to the cave to see the images for myself. And literally, this was one of the most uh, I don't know, remarkable days of my entire career. So we, we climbed up to the cave, which is, is really quite small. It's a little more than a kind of scoop out of a sandstone uh, cliff face. And you could probably touch both sides of the caves with outstretched arms, and you couldn't, they're not tall enough to stand up. But the entire um, surface of the cave is just covered in images, mainly birds. There are a few deer, there's a few people, there's a person with a bow and arrow, there's a man with an axe, but it's mainly birds, over 200 bird images. And literally, I was just blown away. It was one of the most exciting things I've ever encountered. And these are you know, good enough that you can tell the species apart. That's one of the most remarkable things about these images. You know, they're done possibly with the fingers, possibly in a few cases with a very simple brush. But the people that created those paintings had such a relationship with birds that they were able to create the kind of what ornithologists call the jizz of the bird. And um, the archaeologist that's been doing this work has been able to identify quite a number of the species. So there's very distinctive bustards, great bustards. There are distinctive flamingos and some wading birds. There's a distinctive vulture. And there's a distinctive purple gallon. You know, all, all the features that we would just take for granted in terms of how we identify birds, these people had absolutely got it sussed. And given that they had almost no technology with which to make those paintings, it is astounding. You talk about the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, and people will be familiar with the fact that, you know, some of their gods were birds. They had a relationship with birds, but they were mummifying birds on an industrial scale. I mean, absolutely enormous numbers of, of mummified birds have been found. Tell us why. So okay. the situation in Egypt parallels the situation in that cave in Spain in the sense that uh, the cave in Spain is near the Straits of Gibraltar and uh, was opposite a vast wetland that in the spring uh, became full of birds. The Nile Valley was very much the same. And for reasons that we don't really fully understand, the Egyptians, as you say, did worship birds. And in particular, 
the what we now call the sacred ibis, black and white ibis. It's thought that that ibis may have had some links with the god Thoth because uh, that was the god of writing. And the Egyptians imagined that the ibis's long bill was like a quill that went into an ink pot to write. And that's thought to be one link. But as you say quite correctly, there are millions of ibis mummies, each one prepared within, uh, beautifully uh, mummified, sometimes um, dipped in resin, but all always uh, bound in bandages, rather like human mummies, and then placed inside an individual ceramic or sometimes wooden sarcophagus, and then stacked up in these um, catacombs in the, what is now the desert. And it's frustrating that we don't really know what their purpose was. It's thought that people who wanted to make some offering to the gods would buy one of these mummified ibises and they'd pay the money to the priests and then the ibis mummy would be placed inside the um, catacomb in return for some kind of blessing. But the big question relating to this, because there are so many millions of these mummified birds, is where they all came from. And so there's been some suggestion that the ibises might have been bred in captivity. There's a suggestion that they might have been domesticated. But I think that the idea of them being domesticated is a bit exaggerated. And that's partly because people often don't distinguish between what I would call captive breeding, that is, you take a wild bird and keep it in captivity and it happens to breed, and domestication, where you do that over multiple generations, such that some of the genetic variation in the animals concerned, in this case the ibises, is lost. And you can detect that domestication signature by looking at the kind of molecular profile of the animals and detecting what's called a genetic bottleneck. There's actually no evidence for that. My best guess is that people, priests in these temples, went out into the marshes, collected uh, the eggs of the ibises, and probably hatched them in artificial incubation systems. And the Egyptians were the absolute pioneers at artificial incubation. And that seems to me the most likely way in which so many ibises were available for mummification. You talk about the the earliest signs of us what we may call a scientific inquiry into into the natural world and birds in particular with in the Greek and Roman world, so people like Aristotle and Pliny the Elder. But in, from this section I want to talk about birds that the Romans used to eat and <laughs> essentially yeah. the flamingo tongue, which seems to be the great Roman delicacy. Tell us about that. Well, the Roman Empire became more and more um, kind of profligate and exaggerated and, and pretty much as, as in more modern society, if you want to impress your friends, you provide more and more exotic and sometimes more and more disgusting things to eat. And as you say, the ultimate in, in Roman cuisine was the flamingo's tongue. And this set me off on a train of thought that was proved to be both interesting and educational and entertaining at the same time. And um, I never, I mean, I knew the flamingo had a very odd head and it has this very odd upside down head way of feeding. And I knew that the tongue was important in pumping water through the flamingo's beak, pushing the water through a kind of set of filters, rather like the baleen of a, a, a large whale to filter out diatoms and um, shrimps and so on. But I'd never really thought about what the tongue looked like. There have been some studies, but there's nothing like actually seeing a flamingo's tongue for yourself. So I started asking around, and um, somebody 
who work for a museum said, oh, well, we've got a flamingo in the freezer that we could send you the head of. This was a bird that had flown into power lines. Poor old flamingos are a bit vulnerable to that. And um, I was very excited. And in due course, this package arrived in which was the uh, flamingo's head. I had also discussed with that same person whether it might be possible to try eating one to see what the Romans were so excited about. But in fact, when this flamingo head arrived, it had been preserved in industrial alcohol, which is toxic. So there was no way I was going to eat it. But it did. It had been um, preserved very quickly after death and was in perfect condition. And a lot of my biological training had involved doing dissections. And so I was you know, fascinated to dissect out the uh, flamingo's tongue. And it is really the most remarkable structure. So a bird's tongue is usually quite small and um, discreet and houses two bones, a pair of bones called the hyoid bones. The flamingo's tongue had very uh, heavily modified hyoid bones to support it. And it was very, very fleshy and had a huge lump of fat at its base. And I guess that this is what the Romans kind of like to gorge themselves on. The museum guy who sent me the flamingo's head said to me, you know, if you're ever in Italy, I'll save a few and keep them in the freezer and then we can cook them up together following one of the ancient Roman recipes. I'm quite keen to try it, but I'm not absolutely <laughs> holding my breath. It would be fantastic. You talk about the, the history of falconry and something that goes back possibly to the, the Egyptians and maybe even the Romans did it. But particularly, I want to talk about the appearance of falconry or images of falconry in the, um, in the Bayer tapestry. Yeah, falconry was the ultimate hobby for the rich. It was such a kind of... Um, expensive hobby to have you know looking after the birds was uh, not trivial in in any sense so falconry and owning a falcon was a huge signal of status looking at the bayer tapestry um, several of the participants in that story of how harold gets um, the allegedly the arrow in the eye and, and the events leading up to it involve people moving across the channel all carrying a, you know, a hawk on their fist. And a number of scholars have over the years tried to figure out what these birds were. And obviously, if you're embroidering a bird, it's much more difficult to get fine detail. But it appears that they, these birds were probably goshawks, which are kind of the ultimate hunting machine. And such was the status of having a falcon. It was said that somebody that was taken prisoner in a war would rather die than let their falcon go or give it up. Um, so you know, there was a very, very strong bond. And so I was intrigued to kind of follow that through time. And of course, early on, people did have various um, helpers to rear the birds and to catch food for them and all the rest of it. But the falconer and the falcon did develop an incredibly close relationship, a very tight relationship, even though in most cases, the falcons were wild caught. And when they were flying to hunt food, for the falconer. I mean, they had the option of flying away, and some of them did, of course, but most of them came back. So that's a very special kind of relationship, and um, a lot of professional falconers that I've spoken to have talked about that incredible bond between themselves and the bird. And, of course, uh, that was the whole basis for Helen MacDonald's book, H is for Hawk. And I just think that that was a, 
the whole business of falconry was a very interesting episode in our in humans' relationships with birds. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Tim Burkhead, and we're talking about his new book, Birds and Us, a 12,000-year history from cave art to conservation. And Tim, in that chapter on falconry, there appears a guy, uh, well, he's dead now, but uh, you know, a semi-contemporary researcher, William Brunson Yap, whose great project was looking at medieval manuscripts and finding mention of birds in medieval times. And through that yeah. discussion comes out this mention of um, of a sketchbook that Samuel Pepys owned, which you've used as the um, the end papers of this book. Absolutely amazing illustrations that have long troubled researchers as to what all of the... Tell us this ongoing hunt to name all of the species in Samuel Pepys' sketchbook. Yeah, so Samuel Pepys obviously was a uh, well-educated, interesting guy. And it appears that he obtained this this sketchbook in, in the 1600s with no real knowledge of, of where it came from or what it was thought to be. And it might be a kind of guide to doing other images, for example, like creating stained glass window images of birds, or it might have been used for uh, embroidery images. It was a kind of a source book, if you like, 
And in the book itself, in the sketchbook itself, I mean, there are lots of images of angels, but there are these four or five pages of coloured images of birds. And Brunston Yap, who was an interesting and slightly um, eccentric individual, looking at medieval images of birds was his retirement project. And he, he looked at these images and tried to identify uh, some of the birds. And some of the birds that he saw in the sketchbook were continental species that don't or didn't at that time occur in the British Isles. So he thinks that the book had a continental origin, which may well be true. And over the years, several people had attempted to identify all the different bird species in this book, including Yap's nemesis, who was David Lack. And the reason Lack, who was the most famous ornithologist of the 20th century, didn't really hit it off with Yap was because Yap was, at some time in his life, was paid by the pesticide companies to provide fake news about the effect of pesticides on birds of prey. And so he was very much not part of the system that was committed to the conservation of birds. So Yap wasn't terribly popular. He was definitely never mainstream. And so David Lack was one of the first people to be asked to identify some of the birds in the um, sketchbook. And Yap was very condemning of some of Lack's identifications. And you know, Lack says, you know, I think this might be a cuckoo or it might be a falcon. And Yap is uh, very critical of that. But Lack was very careful. He was a smart guy. And he'd say cuckoo question mark because he wasn't sure. But when Yap made his criticism of this, he kind of ignored the fact that Lack had included a question mark. And some of those birds are quite difficult to identify. So there's a pair of birds that several people think might be red-legged partridges. But when I looked at them, I just, yeah, they are kind of partridge-like in shape, but they lack many of the distinctive plumage features that red-legged partridges have. And when I showed them to a whole bunch of my ornithological colleagues, and they agreed that, you know, it's almost impossible to identify what they are. And that could be because the artist made them up. It could be because the paints have faded and those marks that were so critical have disappeared. We just don't know. But I agree with you, and that's the very reason that they were used as the end papers. They are stunningly beautiful. I was going to say, while some of them look incredibly lifelike, the artist has also included the picture of a mermaid, which is um, rather incongruous. (laughs) That says everything, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, something that comes out of that whole chapter of looking at the um, Middle Ages up to, I guess, the Renaissance period, is you sort of talk about how there's a point in time, which we'll just say that arbitrarily 1700, where our relationship with animals starts to change. I mean, obviously, as we talk further on, we'll get to the, we'll get to the latter day when, you know, people obviously can't care a lot more intensely about conservation and about yeah. watching birds for pleasure. But there's still a point, this is like hundreds of years ago, there becomes a point where we start to perhaps treat animals or look upon animals less cruelly than we had in the past. Why was that? When falconry was in its heyday, there were a number of people who were concerned that the act of falconry was kind of corrupting of human nature. If you can be this cruel to your prey, then potentially you could be this cruel to people as well. So there were some small voices that said, you know, hang on, we ought to just look at this a bit more objectively. That feeling that cruelty to animals could be corrupting of people, started to gain some kind of traction. And eventually, over time, that transferred to a feeling of empathy for both the prey themselves, 
and the falcons themselves. And I think the scientific revolution that happened in the mid-1600s started to contribute to that. People started to look at things slightly differently. So that you're right, that was the kind of beginning of a more empathetic view of the animal world in general, and birds in particular. You eventually get to the great 19th century ornithologists and artists, you know, your, your John Goulds and Audubons and, and obviously Darwin. But of course, this is sort of a time when to be a, a somebody who studies birds does still mean basically killing them and raiding their nests for, for eggs and things as well. Yeah, it does, because <laughs> killing birds and collecting their eggs was the only way that you could really study them. You know, So what's hit is history, what's missed is mystery was a common Um, phrase that people use to justify the the killing of birds for science. And prior to that, birds had been killed in vast numbers for mainly for human consumption, but people had also killed birds in order to get their feathers for various things. They'd killed birds in order to get their feces to provide fertilizer and so on. But suddenly science comes along and then it's it's easier to justify killing things because I'm a scientist kind of thing. And when I started to look at this, I was, I mean, I've known about museums, obviously, and they're huge collections for years and years. But when you started to look at it from a slightly different point of view in terms of our relationship with birds, you know, the the scale of the killing that went on was just vast. And it was very easy for these people to, to hide behind a kind of scientific justification. And of course, some of them were very serious scholars and looked at their specimens with a lot of care and wrote it up in scientific papers. But a lot of people just collected stuff because they could. Now, we don't approve of that now. And um, there is still some collecting going on in different parts of the world. But the specimens that were collected by those mainly Victorian collectors are now largely in national museums. And they're very, very important. So we don't approve of that killing now, but it doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't make use of those specimens that might give us insights into the way birds and other organisms evolve. So those museum collections that we now have that were based on that kind of massive scientific slaughter are actually incredibly important. Just sticking for a minute with um, the killing of birds for consumption, there's an absolutely brilliant chapter in the book where you talk about the history of the relationship with the peoples of the Faroe Islands and uh, the many, many seabirds that make a home there, you know, make a temporary home on the Faroe Islands as well. So tell us some of the ways in which the uh, people have have survived centuries living on the Faroe Islands through the, the use of those birds. Yeah, so I mean, lots of kind of remote communities depended on on birds and other forms of wildlife. And people that lived on islands, which are favoured breeding sites for seabirds, uh, were often kind of surrounded by food. So I had to find somewhere that was still kind of actively engaged in this. So in Britain, most people would think of St Kilda as the place where people Mm -hmm. depend on food. The people left St Kilda in the 1930s. But on the Faroes, that harvesting of seabirds and, of course, pilot whales, much more controversially, still goes on. So I had a, a Faroese colleague, and uh, together we went to the Faroes, and it was an absolute revelation. And also, you know, the history of the Faroes is very well documented. The history of bird catching, keeping, and eating is also very well documented. So the Faroese people depended on guillemots, puffins. Gannets on the one island on which gannets um, breed on the Faroes, and latterly on fulmar petrels. 
So when the first records of human activities on the pharaohs were written, again in the 1600s, fulmers didn't exist on the pharaohs. They only turned up in about 1800. And initially, the pharaohs hated them because the fulmers, as they still do today, ousted the guillemots, which were their favourite prey. They, people liked to eat their eggs, um, but these fulmers were actually a darn nuisance. Fulmers first arrived in 1800, and then their numbers just boomed. And then at some point, the pharaohs started eating fulmers as well, mainly the, the chicks. They also eat the eggs. Fulmer eggs are supposed to be extremely good, but the chicks are very easy to harvest. And even today, tens of thousands of fulmer chicks are eaten. There's no bag limit on the number taken, partly because they were once considered a pest. And the way that that harvest happens is that the fulmer has a very long breeding cycle, long incubation, and the chick is a very slow growing. And what the parent fulmers do is to stuff it full of food and the fulmer transforms that food into fat. And so when the fulmer chick eventually fledges, which it does on its own, it can't fly, it just kind of flops down onto the water. And as I say in the book, it's just like a kind of lump of lard floating in the sea. That fat is its food supply to help it survive the first few days or weeks until it becomes sufficiently adept at catching its own food. But it makes them desperately vulnerable. So the way the Faroese still harvest them is just to zoom around in motorboats and scoop them up in, in a net. And the Fulmers are cooked in various ways and sold in the capital, the Faroese capital, Torshaven, in the market. And a lot of people are incredibly um, committed to eating them. They, it's, they, it's now seen as part of their tradition. But that habit of eating Fulmers didn't come without a cost because in the 1920s, there was an outbreak of psittacosis. Uh, I guess it's kind of related to something like bird flu, and quite a number of local people died. And there was obviously then a ban on eating fulmers. And once they found some different ways of dealing with that, and the psittacosis seems to have disappeared, then people were allowed to harvest fulmers again. Puffins, of course, were also very popular. And I think there's a very interesting um, aspect to the, the seabird harvest. So the number of puffins that were available to be caught on the Faroese Islands started to decline rather dramatically in the 1970s when uh, puffin breeding success just collapsed. And so the Faroese, who had been harvesting puffins and other seabirds for about 500 years, uh, decided to put a, a limit on the number of puffins that could be a self-imposed limit on the number that could be taken. And each year that limit got lower and lower as the puffin population decreased. And their argument was that, you know, we've been doing this for 500 years. We've been harvesting puffins for 500 years and the population seemed to be stable. And one reason why it seemed to be stable or was stable was that they only took the non-breeding, the immature non-breeding birds. So it was a very self-regulated harvest in a very rather sophisticated way. And then suddenly, starting in the 1970s, everything seems to go wrong. They um, harvest fewer and fewer puffins, and the population still continues to decline. And now we realise that that's all because of climate change, shifting the distribution of plankton, the distribution of the prey that the puffins would feed their chicks on. And so often the chicks starve. The way I describe it is, you don't have a car, there's a supermarket around the corner where you get all your supplies. And then one day the supermarket closes and the next nearest one is 200 miles away. 
there is no way for you, it's economic, to walk or cycle 200 miles to do your weekly shopping. You know, you've had it. And that's what basically happened to seabirds throughout much of the North Atlantic. The fish have been shifted away from the colonies and the birds, it's just too far for them to fly to go and get the food to feed the chicks. And so this decline um, in, the, in puffins and in guillemots and other species is dreadful and it's happening pretty well everywhere and it's driven largely by climate change. And you know, the Faroese people say, you know, this, this isn't our fault. We've harvested birds for all these years without a reduction in the population. And now climate change, which is caused by the industrial nations of the world, that's caused this problem and um, they're in a difficult situation. The key message that I kind of want to get across is that our relationship with birds has changed dramatically over time. Predominantly, it's been one of exploitation. And it's only really the start of the 19th century where we have this strong empathy towards birds. And I thought that by drawing attention to the fact that our relationship has changed so much over time, it would make people aware, because what I don't want to see is is us reverting back to this more exploitative um, relationship with birds. So by writing about it, I hope I've raised awareness that this is a kind of vulnerable, rather privileged position we currently find ourselves in. So I've been talking to Tim Burkhead. We've been talking about his new book, Birds and Us, a 12,000-year history from cave art to conservation, um, which is out in the UK now from Penguin Viking. Tim, thank you so much for talking to me about it. Pleasure. Thank you very much. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.